The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Episode 7A, Proust, Pound, and Literary Observers. So, next time we're going to be looking at the classic poetry of ancient China. And I'm immersed in that now, doing the reading, doing the research, refreshing myself on something I once knew quite a bit about. And the experience of this research has made me think of an old experience I had years and years ago when I was studying Chinese. Let me back up. I think I've maybe talked about this before, maybe not on this podcast, about how in college I had something like a breakdown near breakdown, maybe you could call it, some sort of psychic dark night of the soul. It was all about me. That's what college is for. (laughs) not going to apologize too much for being that way in college. I think everyone is that way in college or at that age. Felt like I had never been anywhere. I had never traveled. I had never been on a plane. I was 20 years old. I had never been on a plane. I was a nobody. There's nothing special to me. If I was a color, I would have been the color gray. And then I went to Italy. Flew on a plane to get there. Flew to New York. Flew from New York to Italy. This was my third year of college. The color gray suddenly had some color to it. That was... Color, that's all Italy is, really. It's colors. It's colorful. It's like India or Manhattan. It's like passing from a world of black and white into the world of color, just like the Wizard of Oz. It's enchanted land, Italy. So I came back from there, back to my gray world, the world that had once been gray, where I had once been gray in it. Just hungry for travel experiences. Just desperate to keep keep up some kind of momentum. Had to return for a fourth year of college, though. And along the way, I had also gone completely insane, completely mad for literature. It seemed like the only thing that was expansive enough to keep up with life was plunge into these books, novels, essays, philosophy. It was like a drug. And I was like an addict, did something to my mind. Combination of all the drugs, maybe. Could not get enough. Just fall into my apartment, fall into my bed, pile of books, spend the whole weekend, emerge on Monday morning, go back to class. Just counting the hours until I could get back into my world of reading. And then... After college, I went to Taiwan. I had a cousin there. I think I've written about this experience in a few different of the objects in the History of Jack and 100 Objects series. You can find those on the website, jackwilson.com. 
J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com. I'm not going to go into too much of the experience in Taiwan. I tend not to like travel stories. I'm sure you're probably the same. Listeners lose patience. I lose patience. Like listening to other people's dreams. Who cares? Ever do this? Ever tell someone about a country you visited? And you tell them about a great trip and something funny that happened while you were there and you're in the middle of your story and they interrupt you and they tell you about some other place they visited? (laughs) That's what we do. Nobody cares. You care about your own trip. You don't care about the trips others take. At least you don't care about the basics. You don't care that someone went to the Eiffel Tower and took a picture of it. They want to show you the picture of themselves at the Eiffel Tower or they want to show you the picture of themselves in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And they're holding it up with their hands as if it's going to collapse if they don't. You know what I'm talking about. Staged photos. You smile politely. Save that for the grandparents. Save that for the parents. Close family members. Nobody else is going to care. So you lost your luggage. You ate a nice meal. You met some nice people. You saw some incredible thing. Nobody cares. But if you had a genuine experience, something actual happened, that I might care about, of course, just as I would care about it if it happened to you at home. So here's the concern. This is the issue that was driving me at this point. My young age, I was setting out to make something out of my life try to figure out some way of living in this world. One issue, who am I? In particular, am I an actor? Someone who takes action? Am I a doer? Or am I an observer? Someone who stands off to the side, watching, reflecting, absorbing, watching others do things? Now, I had always thought of myself as someone who does things. In high school, that's who I was, wasn't I? After college, I was not so sure. Others were engaged. I felt like they had had a head start in life. In the business of changing things and doing things, they came from people who did that sort of thing. Real movers and shakers, real power brokers. East Coast city dwellers. Guys from Greenwich. Women who were doctors, surgeons, heads of hospitals. That's who these, that's who my colleagues, my fellow students, that's who they came from. That was their stock. The real power brokers of America. And so my fellow students had a head start and I never caught up. That's how I felt. And maybe, this is what I was realizing, I was temperamentally unsuited. Maybe my disposition was to watch, was just to watch others make their mark. I wasn't sure how I felt about this. Anyway, there I am in Taiwan. I wind up living on my own. After a while of having some roommates, I wound up in my own apartment. And there I just indulged. I just succumbed. I was like one of those guys who holds up and decides they're going to turn their life over to heroin, except for me, my heroin was books. I would teach, would get out a little bit of fresh air, as fresh as it was in Taiwan in those days. Hopefully it's better now. Back then it was not all that fresh. I had a pollution mask. I wore when riding my motorcycle around. My favorite thing with the pollution masks in Taiwan was that people would have a pollution mask on and they'd also be smoking. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. The fresh air apparently being worse for you than cigarettes. They slide their mask off to one side, take a drag on the cigarette, blow it back out through the mask. The one way, one way pollution mask, apparently. The fantastic year. So I would get out for a little bit of fresh air. I'd teach encounter the students, loved my students, just loved the experience. 
He'd pay me in cash. I'd come home, spend all my money on books, and just lie down and read all weekend. It was a fantastic year. And I was studying Chinese. Now, a lot of people said, just study the spoken language. That's all you're going to need to get around. Written language is too hard. They've simplified it in China. That's what people in Taiwan would tell me. Oh, they simplified it in China, in mainland China. What we have here, the traditional Chinese, way too hard. But I wanted to learn the characters. I wanted to, I didn't want to learn simplified versions. I wanted to tap into the thousands of years of written language, written history in China. Oh, what a great civilization. What an unbelievable history wanted to tap into that through the language. So I had these little flashcards and took them everywhere. I'd be waiting in line somewhere. I'd pull out the flashcards, learn more Chinese, stare at the characters. It was awesome. I was so motivated. I worked so hard and I could see the results that I was actually learning Chinese. It's amazing when you're dedicated to something and you have all this time on your hands. You have hours and hours where you're doing nothing sitting at a tea house, just studying Chinese, believing in the language, believing in yourself. It's a very powerful, heady drug. I had some setbacks, of course. Anyone would. Learning a language comes with that. I can remember once I was teaching in a kindergarten class with my Chinese co-teacher. And the Chinese co-teacher was making the kids write some, some things on the board, some letters or something. And they were, you know, feeling a little self-conscious, feeling a little frustrated. So she had me write on the board. Why not? Let's have Jack write on the board. That'll show the kids that it's not so hard. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be embarrassed about. You can write it in another language. So I got up there, wrote my Chinese. And one of the little boys said something that I didn't understand. And I looked at the co-teacher and I thought, you know, what was it? I was sure that he was impressed. It was a surprise to everybody that I could write Chinese. Most people didn't think I was going to be learning Chinese. And if they did, like I said, if they did think it, they thought I was just going to be learning the spoken language. Here I was. Knew a few characters. So I said, what did he say? And the co-teacher said, oh, he said, He's just drawing. He's not writing. He's not writing the character. He's just drawing them. Ouch. A kindergarten a kindergartner said that. How did he figure that out? I felt really exposed by that. Anyway, another setback. I tried to ask a woman out. This was this was a brutal experience for me. I was always horrible at this kind of thing. This woman had seen me studying at a tea house. We had smiled at each other several times. I sat at this tea house. There was a tea house that I absolutely loved. I used to sit there for hours and hours, and so did she. She was reading. What a lot in common we had. Turned out she knew some English. We were able to speak in English, having a good time, both very young, free, I guess you could say we were flirting. So one day I said, to her, well, here, let me write you a note. She, she was impressed that I was learning Chinese. Of course, everyone was. It's funny. They're not impressed when a, a five-year-old, a five-year-old Taiwanese child writes a character, but they are impressed when a, a grown person from another country writes in Chinese. So she was impressed that I was spending all this time learning the characters. And I said, here, let me write you a note. This was my big plan. I knew about 10 words when I did this, maybe a few more. And so I got a piece of paper and I wrote, are you busy? And she read it and she said, am I expensive? 
Oh, it was the worst. It was like, I knew like three adjectives. Busy was one and expensive was, was another. And I messed them up. I switched them around. <laughs> Are you expensive? Are you expensive? Oh, what a disaster. You see, things like that happened to me. They did not go well. There were real setbacks, but I kept it up. And there was a, an excitement to it. I was making progress. felt satisfied. I had this plan. I was just going to keep learning languages, move on from Chinese. I had Italian under my belt. I had English, of course. Chinese was the best. And I was becoming a fan. Or I had become a fan of Ezra Pound somewhere along the way. I think it was a modernism class I had taken in college. I knew all the problems with Ezra Pound and I still had a soft spot for him, for his passion. I knew that things did not end well for him. He was very wrong about certain things. Has anyone ever been so right and so wrong? I mean, both of them together. There were so many things to admire about Ezra Pound and so many completely despicable things. The figure I just couldn't get out of my head. He was a hero, but half of him only. And then he was a villain, but only half. Half hero, half villain. What a figure. And I thought he was right about Chinese poetry. That was one of the things I thought he was right about. Turns out he was wrong. I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I was going mainly by his essay, uh, Chinese Character as a Medium for Written Poetry. It wasn't his essay. It was one that he championed. It had been written by a Harvard professor. It was a great story. Written by a professor, sort of lifelong scholar of Chinese poetry. The scholar passed away, and the scholar's widow sought out Ezra Pound recognized in him some kind of kindred spirit, some sort of keeper of the poetic flame, someone who would understand her husband's work, understand the importance of it. She gave him all of his notes, and Pound ran with that. He used it to translate some poems. It really helped him. I'll get into that in a minute. But this essay was a fascinating read. I was having... I was studying so much Chinese, I was having dreams about Chinese characters. Sometimes I'd be walking through a meadow and there'd be all these little things in the grass. It'd be little Chinese characters just sitting there and I could pick them up like snowflakes, tangible objects. Or sometimes they'd talk to me. A character would turn into a face and it would start telling me about its day. Sometimes the characters would be enormous and I'd be tiny. I'd climb up one side like a ladder and slide down the other side, my arms fully around it like a big tube. Has anyone else experienced this? Had anyone else experienced this? I wondered. It was an interesting transformation that my mind was going through, my brain. It was a year of transformation. I had a girlfriend. I had friends. I saw fights. Stayed out all night. Traveled around the island. Flew all over the place. Flew to Hong Kong. Flew to the Philippines. Flew to Thailand. Unforgettable formative experiences. I had a motorcycle. All of this is stuff I've written about. Or I might someday. I don't want to lose the thread here. And I've already told you that... I recognize that people find travel stories boring and dreams boring, and then I've done both. My apologies for that. Let's get back to Chinese characters. And Ernest Fenelosa, that was the scholar's name. And Pound at the time was championing something else called imagism. He was one of the imagists. He was finding other poets who wrote in that tradition. It sounds like a doomed tradition, a fad. Any sort of poetry manifesto lasts about 10 years. Today, probably even less. Today, it probably lasts three months. I don't know, six hours before Twitter shouts it down. Listen to the images. This started in 1908. 
had the major tenets. Here's the first one. To use the language of common speech, but to employ always the exact word, not the nearly exact, nor the merely decorative word. Can you believe there was a need for that? But there was. I'll give you an example of a poem from that era that imagism was reacting against. Pound boiled imagism down to these three things. First, direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. I think we still agree with that today. Second, use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. Now, you can turn this into uh, something negative. You could say this makes things a little too spare, too austere. But even so, I think we still agree with this. There's no room in people's lives for words that don't belong, that don't contribute. Fluff words, words that tell you that the the poet has a big vocabulary. Pound's third idea. A rhythm composed in the sequence of the musical phrase not in the sequence of the metronome. Those ideas won. We agree with them today. You can see this by looking at the poetry that lost. The flowery, ornate stuff of the Georgian period. Now, doesn't mean you have to write in a spare style or an austere style. Doesn't mean you have to write short lines or anything like that. Not everybody should follow all three of these tenets slavishly. But what people don't do is that sort of clearing your throat, sliding their glasses to the top of their nose, writing verse like the Georgian age. Here's one. I just grabbed this almost at random. The Hair by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. Listen to this first stanza. The Hair. My hands were hot upon a hair half strangled, struggling in a snare, my knuckles at her warm windpipe, when suddenly her eyes shot back, big, fearful, staggering, and black, and ere I knew my grip was slack, and I was clutching empty air, half mad, half glad at my lost luck, when I awoke beside the stack. Okay, not horrible, but... Can you imagine this today? I mean, this is kind of got that sing-songiness. You start listening to the music. You start listening to the the words, and the the idea just falls away. What is going on here? And then listen to this. This is stanza number two. Tell me the moment when you completely lose what the poet is trying to do, and you're just basically listening for the next rhyme or the next thing that the poet is going to accomplish as a poet not as someone who's telling you about a hair listen to this twas just the minute when the snipe as through clock wakened every jack an hour ere dawn dart in and out the mist wreaths filling psych and slack and flutter wheeling round about and drumming out the summer light i lay stargazing yet a bit Then, chilly-skinned, I sat upright to shrug the shivers from my back, and drawing out a straw to suck, my teeth nipped through it at a bite. The liveliest lad is out of pluck an hour ere dawn, a tame cock-sparrow, when cold stars shiver through his marrow, and we mist soaks his mother wit. Huh? What? (laughs) What? And you think of the poet as being this person who's so in love with themselves and their own little rhymes and their own ability to put this stuff together. It's got all the feeling. Where's the person under that? More like watching someone do a Sudoku. Admire how quickly they do it, the cleverness. It's just killing time. That's all. It's not giving you anything. So there's Pound. Pound says... Let's do away with this. Let's just scissor all of this out of our lives. Let's go straight at what we're trying to say. Let's get the poet out of the way. Focus on the thing, the image. And here in Chinese poetry, he found a great example of it. He got these from Fenelosa's widow. He didn't know Chinese. 
Pound himself didn't know Chinese, but he had he had some notes from someone who did, and he brought out a book of translations. Of course, they're more about Pound's view of the poems, about Pound as poet, than they are about any sort of faithful translation. But I think even though the poems are wrong, even though the translations are wrong, you can see how much it helped him, the poet. It was almost like it gave him the confidence to cut away all the standard conventions to say, you can be spare and still write poems. You don't have to flower things up. You don't have to show how well you can rhyme and how you can bounce along, how these lines bounce along. You don't have to do that. You can just focus on the sensation or the image. You don't have to exhibit certain skills. The poem is the thing. Trust your readers to trust you. We still have a problem with this in America, by the way. We still think that if you're not showing off in some way, that you're not really doing anything hard, that you're doing something that anyone could do. We really struggle with this idea of restraint. We pile on. That's We, we are not taker-outers. We are putter-inners as a culture. That's what we admire or that's what we celebrate. That's what we promote. We have a really hard time cutting back, being spare, being unobtrusive. Here's the other great thing about Fenelosa and and the way it came through Pound. This is getting back to that essay I mentioned. Chinese character is a medium for written poetry. The written character matters. Each character has a visual representation. The sun is, is a drawing of a sun. It's based on a drawing of a sun. And the moon, it looks just like the sun with beams coming out of it. You can see where this evolved thousands of years ago. These written pictograms turned into characters. And then other characters picked up the characters, maybe because a word sounded like another word, so they would use one of the little characters on the left side of that word or in the upper right corner of that word to help people realize it sounds like this word. The word I'm trying to draw now sounds like this other word. Eventually you have three or four of these little pictures in a combination. It takes on its own visual representation, its own meaning. You had traces, remnants, people... All this history, all these echoes of meaning, and the beauty of writing itself. I know I was accused of just drawing. He's, he's not writing, he's just drawing. Well, Chinese is kind of like drawing in some ways, much more than an alphabet anyway. Why Chinese calligraphy is so beautiful, why it can be so much a part of those paintings, beautiful paintings. And this beauty would be embedded in your poem, character by character. And when you have that, I was struck by it the way I imagined Pound was when he first read about this. It's like the difference between 3D or 2D. You have a flat surface all the time and suddenly something comes to life. A whole other dimension, this written version, this written character and what it, what it could mean for your poem. It was like seeing things in color versus black and white. And of course, I wasn't advanced enough to really understand, but I could, I could guess. I could try to figure it out. I could stare at the poems, recognize little patterns, see little echoes from one character to another. I didn't know what it would really mean for someone who had grown up in that tradition. Maybe I was completely wrong. From what I understand, most people think Pound was a little over-enthusiastic about this, and I probably was too, following his example. I just knew that English, any alphabet language, had very little to compare. It's not, I'm not counting those poems where they make words look like wings or a trapeze artist or some sort of visual representation by using spacing and typography. That's not the same thing. 
There you're going to look at that and think, what a clever guy the poet is. I'm talking about a simple, beautiful poem of a traveler stopping by a stream, hearing fish below the surface. And you see all those little ripples in the Chinese character. Just beautiful. The poem's characters contribute to the beauty of the poem in their own way. Now, I'm going to stop there at least in terms of Chinese poetry, because we're getting ahead. We're getting into Monday's territory where we'll be doing a deeper dive into Chinese poetry. Tune in, come back for that. But I do want to say that although Ezra Pound was wrong, apparently I didn't know that at the time. I only saw new doors, new horizons. I have him to thank for that. It felt like he was a kindred spirit across the generations. That his mind had expanded the way my mind was expanding now. Almost a hundred years later. I had Chinese, Chinese poetry, and all the food and the travel and the heat and the language and the sounds, the smells, the rain, everything. Ideas was surrounded by all of it, like being in this great gorge, looking up, and everything around me was fresh and new. So then, after Taiwan, I headed off to China. I had this idea that I would travel around the world by the surface, only taking surface forms of transportation, no airplanes. From Hong Kong, I took a boat to Shanghai and a train to Beijing and a long trip west headed for Tibet, which was illegal at the time. I would be sneaking in, but I felt like I was, I was acting, that I was an actor, a doer, not just observing. Or was I observing? Was that what travel was? Was I just putting myself in a place to be an observer? Maybe I was an observant actor or a vigorous, active observer. Or maybe I was a writer. Isn't that the happy medium? Wasn't that what I was aspiring to all along? Aren't those the people who act and observe all at once? Maybe. Maybe that's who I thought I was or who I thought I could be. But how do you strike the balance? I wanted to experience things, the world wanted to grow up, be a grown-up, have a family. Know what it was to own a house and be rooted somewhere permanent. And at the same time, I wanted to keep moving, travel everywhere, see everything, meet everyone, do everything. And yet I also wanted to retreat from the world, to stand to one side. Just observe, take it all in. Try to understand what I was seeing. Maybe I didn't want to. Maybe that's all I could do. Just observe. I was on these long train rides with thoughts like this. I don't know how well formed they were. They were probably more like desperate yearnings than thoughts. These long train rides where they're completely filled with smoke. All these unfiltered cigarettes being smoked like crazy. Really hot August. Traveled everywhere by the, not only was I traveling everywhere by surface, by land, I, I had the idea that I had to travel as cheaply as possible, stay in the cheapest possible places, never take first class, only ride with the people, the masses, no taxis, buses. Trains. Because I didn't really want to be an observer, or I wanted to be, but not from a privileged vantage point, to the extent I could help it. I wanted to observe what life was like, real life for real people. There I was. China's a big country. Trains were slow. When you're not getting express trains, I was on one long train ride after another 18 hours, 24 hours going all the way across the country that way, heading toward Tibet, 
the mountains, the highest points on earth, the sky itself. I didn't know what I'd find there. Had a guidebook, was going through. Even the names were just fascinating. I couldn't wait to get there, but I was also a little bit afraid, a little bit afraid of sneaking in. Seemed to involve hitchhiking on trucks, putting a lot of faith in people. People who were themselves willing to break the law. All around me, some people who were going to Tibet or they had come back from there, they had had bad experiences and been thrown in jail for a night. But they were on their way. They were going to distribute photos of the Dalai Lama. I remember one guy who was planning to go to Tibet and somebody said, yeah, take some pictures of the Dalai Lama. The people really need them. And the guy said, I'm not, I'm not here to shake a stick at the dragon. I thought, wow, this is a dragon. You'd check in sometimes and the, the authorities would take your passport and they would just disappear. You'd sit there for like an hour. What are they doing with my passport? Felt like being a spy. Like you were a spy who had been caught when all I was doing was all I was doing was just trying to see a few things for my own benefit. How could I explain that? I'm just trying to be an observant actor or a vigorous observer. I'm just trying to figure that out, sir. I'm not here to spy. And then on those trains riding across China, some of the roughest areas of China. It gets out to the areas where you'd read things in the guidebook like the population quadrupled when Mao started using this for prison labor. You'd look around and you'd see all these hard scrabble, all these hardened faces. People working in mines, factories, Really hard lives. The travelers I was with were probably going from one. Sometimes you'd see a family that seemed to be on their way to maybe a a three-day vacation or something. Or they'd be going to visit relatives. A lot of times you'd see people who just seemed to be being transported from one brutal job to the next. It'd be harsh sounds, mostly men in these train cars, some grim smiles, or just some blank looks, mean eyes, scars. I was traveling among them, found some spots on the floor. Luckily, I didn't have anything. Otherwise, I probably would have been robbed. I had a backpack. Everything I owned was in a backpack, and I either sat on the backpack or chained it to something. Although... Once I did have a camera in there, just a disposable camera. Somebody just cut open my backpack and grabbed it, took it out. It was one thing I had that was had any value at all. Everything else was just dirty clothes, books, toothbrush with a sawed-off handle, save, save room. I was traveling, needed to sleep, uncomfortable all the time, so I found some spots on the floor. Guys would just lay underneath the seats. It was so hot. So desperate after hour 12 or hour 16. You just have to sprawl out on the floor. It was dirty, filthy, but who cared? Your body needed it, needed to stretch out. Then we'd get to stops. You'd kind of wake up and look. You'd be at a stop and everyone would be pressed against the window. And a guy would come around on the platform with a hose. He would just spray down the side of the train and people would have their mouths open to get a little water. And I was reading Proust. I know. I know it sounds affected. Sounds like I'm, I was trying to be somebody, trying to be some sort of, some sort of, ridiculous person, but I had learned that I needed big, thick books. I needed projects. That's the only way to kill time back then. I had to immerse myself in some kind of world. I had started Proust in college. It was assigned reading, Red Swan's Way. I I told myself I was going to finish. I wasn't going to be this guy who just read the first volume. I, I could read the whole thing. I had my whole life ahead of me. 
Seemed like there was time. I made that part of my journey. I read a, another volume or two when I was in Taiwan. And then when I was traveling through China somewhere, I picked up a big three-volume set, probably in Hong Kong. Picked up the big middle volume, combined three volumes. So I was reading Proust. Immersed. Could just fall into that world of all those duchesses and princesses and Marcel, <laughs> the, the little dandy who's watching it all. Isn't he like the classic observer? That guy with those big eyes, Marcel Proust, the real person, I mean, going to these events, watching, watching. Everyone thinks, oh, he's a nice guy. And then all of a sudden he comes out with these enormous books where he's taken everything in, written everything down, and people are astounded. Marcel wrote this? <laughs> That's what he was doing when he was sitting there in the corner saying polite things. He was really burning inside, watching us all, soaking up everything about us, and then putting it back out into these volumes that he couldn't stop writing, couldn't stop revising, couldn't stop adding to. He would have. He was like, Post-its. If we had post-its today, I'm surprised he didn't invent post-its. He would, he would write a manuscript page and then he would start writing on a piece of paper and he would have to glue it to the paper and he would make it, and then he would have to glue something to the, to that piece of paper. He would have these chains of paper with these long sentences, long paragraphs and more and more and more. He's putting in and putting in and putting in. Here I am, the, probably the greatest putter-inner of all. Marcel Proust, and the greatest taker-outers of all the Chinese poets. Those are my, my companions. Here we are on the train. I'm reading these sentences, these Proustian sentences, and they became like companions. They seemed real. They were like my friends, just like those Chinese characters had been in my dreams that would talk to me. These sentences are so substantial. It's like they're, it's like I needed to buy them a ticket to sit on the train with me. I kind of look around and be like, is anybody else seeing this? Of course they weren't. Nobody else is reading along with me. You ever have that experience? Reading something and you look up like, wow, can you believe that just happened? <laughs> you remember almost like you have headphones on. Nobody else can hear the song, but you think they can. Like you read a sentence and then you look up and be like, can you believe Marcel just did that? Or just, can you believe that sentence we just got through? But you're alone. You're alone except for the sentence. That's your only friend. That's what's keeping you company. And I could drift in and out of sleep. As much sleep as I could get, you'd have to snatch minutes of it at a time sometimes. My backpack chained to the seat below me and my plastic mug for tea at my side and Proust on my lap. That was me acting slash observing, just like Marcel. I was reading that great book, wondering how I was going to do in the high altitudes of Tibet when I finally got there. I wasn't sure what it would mean to be in those mountains. And then I got to a stop and I looked up. We were deep in the heart of western China in the middle of nowhere, starting to get very dangerous for me to even be there. I was afraid of everything, everyone. Everyone seemed like they could be a potential informer, someone who would tell people I I was about to head somewhere where I didn't actually have a permit to be. We got to a stop and I looked up and there was a guy who was sitting across from me in the in the seat opposite mine. He was retrieving his wallet out of his jacket and he saw me wake up. He looked over and he held his fingers to his lips in the universal sign for be quiet. Keep your mouth closed. Shh. I nodded. It was hard to communicate. Most people didn't even try to communicate with me once they saw who I was. 
from my face, saw that I wasn't from China. Wasn't from that area. They didn't assume I spoke any Chinese. They assumed I spoke none. Which wasn't that far from the truth. I often didn't understand what people were saying. But if they tried to communicate, it was through gestures like this. Lots of hands moving around. Smiles, sometimes. Anger, sometimes. Signs for money. That kind of thing. So a finger on the lips, fine. I was used to that. You want me to be quiet? Okay. I should have realized how odd it was. It was a busy, chaotic train. Why would he want me to be quiet? But I just nodded. Quiet? Okay. Then the guy climbed out the window. What? (laughs) There he goes. That was what I thought. Wow, there he goes. I thought, okay, he's taking a shortcut to the platform. He's probably trying to buy something quickly before the train takes off again. Buy some kind of water, soda or something. That's why he came back for his wallet. That's what was going through my mind. And then the train started to pull out. The guy wasn't back yet. And another man returned and put on the jacket. And the train started picking up speed. And I realized there had been some terrible mistake. That's what was going through my mind. Oh, the wrong guy put on this jacket. I was going to say something. Hey, hey, that's the wrong jacket. Simple mistake. All the jackets look the same. You put the wrong one on. Until finally, our train had picked up speed. And the guy who had climbed out the window had not returned. And finally I realized that this man who was sitting across from me, this new man, that was his jacket. He was the passenger who was sitting in that seat. He had left his jacket behind when he went to get something on the platform. And that guy who had climbed in and out of the window, I had I had watched a theft. He was a thief. I had seen this man's, my fellow passenger's wallet get stolen. I had observed it and had done nothing. A guy, a thief, looked at me, put his fingers to his lips, and I just smiled and nodded. Yep, I understand. I gotcha. I can be quiet. I had observed this. And I had done nothing. Me, the great observer. But my observation here, it wasn't because it was a choice. It was because I was too clueless and hopeless, and pathetic to do anything but observe. I was too unobservant to do anything but observe. That was, That's me in a nutshell. That was it. That was it for me. And here I was, headed for these mountains. I had them all on a list in my mind, the whole route planned out. Everywhere I would go, all the mountains I needed to cross, to make my way through Tibet, make my way down to Nepal and India. I had that all in mind, a whole mental map dotted with these mountains, these Himalayas that I had to cross. And yet, in another sense, I had no idea how many mountains I had still ahead of me and how difficult they would be to cross. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. Join us next time for a deeper look at classical Chinese poetry. In the meantime, you can check us out at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you would please rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Ratings and reviews really help us to keep this sorry little show afloat. And... Bring it to an audience of people who are starving for sorry little shows like this one. Whoever those poor souls may be. We're getting close to the holidays. Are you with me, people? This is a great time of year. I think so. Why? All the joy and all the melancholy. All mixed in one, which I love. You can see us at historyofliterature.com. Lots of new things planned for the new year. 
That'll be exciting. You won't want to miss out. So subscribe now and get a new episode every Monday and every Thursday. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Wilson, and this has been the History of Literature.